Welcome to the Pastor Nick Santo Podcast, a podcast designed to help you live closer to Jesus. We hope that God uses it to encourage and empower you in His plan for your life. Now let's get into today's content. If you have your Bible, please open it to first, second, sorry, Second Samuel chapter 12. And if you need, I wish it was 1 Samuel 12, but it's 2 Samuel chapter 12. And if you need a Bible, just get the attention of one of the ushers and they will uh, drop one off to you as they are passing by. We're going to get into this chapter. I'm thankful that you guys came back. If you were here last week and you came back, a double thank you. You know, it's kind of a heavy um, section, segment of scripture. It's not as joyful as the earliest chapters of 2 Samuel, but, um, but God speaks nevertheless, and his word is always good. You ever uh, go to a restaurant and, you know, they put, you're, you're really hungry and they put the plate in front of you and you just kind of feel like you're going to be disappointed before you even eat it. But then you eat it and you're like, no, that was actually pretty good. That's my prayer tonight that we get into this and, and God's going to speak uh, nonetheless. I, I was a little bit rough on David last week. I left here um, after the message and I was kind of like gripped with this reality that someday I'm going to have a conversation with David. You know, and I'm going to have to look at him and like, I, you know, I said all these things and, you, you know, you're going through and, you know, you have, you can, you have a way of kind of like for emphasis sometimes, uh, you know, saying it and painting it in such a light. And, you know, someday I got to look at him right in, in the face. And um, here's the reality of it is that uh, me as the, the speaker here tonight, I have not personally done the deeds that David did in Second Samuel chapter 11, which is what we studied last week. That's true, but it is also equally true that I have not done the deeds that David did in 1 Samuel 17 when he slew Goliath. I have not done the deeds that David did in 1 Samuel 18 through chapter 31 where he successfully overcame every trial and temptation and uh, thing that God put in front of him. I have not done the things that David did in 2 Samuel chapters 1 through 10, nor the things that he did and will do in chapters 13 through the end of his life. So the bottom line is that, yes, David blew it badly in chapter 11, but in God's book, David is still one of the goats. And by that, I mean one of the greatest of all time. You know, so uh, came down a little hard on David, and, and rightly so, but nevertheless, uh, David, David's life is still held up by God even after the fact as a man who is an example, as someone that we're to uh, be inspired by and aspire to be great like he was. And so God will continue to speak. He holds up what David did for us as a warning and to teach us truth and to guide our path. But tonight we get to see God's restoration and we get to see God's heart in a way that maybe we wouldn't if David hadn't done what David did. And so we're going to read uh, 2 Samuel. We're going to start in the last sentence of chapter 11, and then we're going to just read through the first part of verse 7 uh, as the springboard for our study, and we will, uh, Lord willing, get through the chapter tonight. And so if you would, you've turned in the Bible. It's 2 Samuel. We'll start the last sentence of chapter 11. It says this. It says, but the thing... That David had done displeased the Lord. And the Lord sent Nathan 
unto David. Now, it doesn't say this in the text, but in between the last verse of chapter 11 and the first verse of chapter 12, uh, a, a long period of time has passed, probably a year or more. It's, it's been a year and probably a half since David first laid eyes on Bathsheba. So there is a time gap between the two. And it says that the Lord sent Nathan, who was a prophet, unto David... And he came unto him and said unto him, There were two men in one city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceeding many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing save one little ewe lamb, which he had bought and nourished up, and it grew up together with him and with his children. It did eat of his own meat and drank of his own cup, and lay in his bosom, and was unto him as a daughter. And there came a traveler unto the rich man, and he spared to take of his own flock and of his own herd to dress for the wayfaring or traveling man that was come unto him. But he took the poor man's lamb and dressed it for the man that was come to him. And David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord liveth, the man that has done this thing shall surely die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold or four times because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Mercy, David. You a little guilty about something? Maybe? You're reacting here a little bit. And Nathan said to David, you are the man. Let's pray. Father, we just come to you tonight, and Lord, as we look at this somber passage of Scripture, you tell us that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for reproof, rebuke, correction, and instruction in righteousness that we might be thoroughly complete, lacking nothing. And so, Father, I pray that you would take this chapter and that you would teach us of your ways and of your truth. And that we might know your heart and that, Lord, your ways would be applied in the places of our guilt and our need. So help us tonight, Lord, to hear not just your voice, but your heart and to know your tenderness through all the things that we read and hear. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the the most beautiful and difficult purposes that exist in the human realm is that of relationships. Can anybody amen that? Beautiful and difficult. It's one of the foundational elements of our being, really. The Bible says that we were made in the image of God. And because God is relational, we also are made to be relational. We were made for it. Even before Adam sinned in the garden, he became aware of a need that he had for companionship and relationship, not just with God, but with another human. Before the fall, God made him aware of the fact that there was no mate, no helper, no counterpart for him, even though there was for all of the other animals and all the other creation of God. We were made for relationships. Relationship is necessary, even for the introverts among us. Yes, even for me. I, ever since I said that a few weeks ago, that's all I've heard from anybody is that I'm such an introvert. Yes, it's true, okay? But relationships are necessary for all of us, but they are also 
complicated because they involve people, okay? And people come with a variety of needs, desires, emotions, vulnerabilities, personalities, quirks. And then when you throw in on top of that a sin nature, hidden motives, human weaknesses, and inherent selfishness, you have something that is a wonderfully dangerous entity. It's a relationship, (laughs) okay? Now, in order to have a meaningful relationship with any other living thing, you've got to have a couple of things. You have to, first of all, have common ground. Amos chapter 3, verse 3, it says that can two walk together except they be agreed? And you cannot. There must first be common ground or a meeting place for the relationship to happen. But then if it's going to be meaningful, a relationship must have transparency. I have to be, and so does the other person, has to be willing to be known. There also has to be a level of vulnerability. That is, a willingness to be wounded or a willingness to be hurt or exploited in some way. I cannot have a meaningful relationship without opening myself to some level of vulnerability. There must also be charity. Charity is just kind of a Bible word that means love that gives. There's a giving, and it's a reciprocal giving that happens in relationships. There must also be commitment, That is, that there's a willingness to stay and to wait and to be patient with another person. And then finally, there must be some level of communication. You can't grow in a relationship with someone without some level of communication. It doesn't necessarily imply talking all the time, but there is a communication. Now, that list could probably go on and on and on, things that are necessary to have a meaningful relationship. But when you start to play out all of those things, and you're talking about human beings and all of their complexity, you begin to realize that relationships are difficult, and they're very complex, and the older we get, the more rare they become, because it's hard to find all of the things necessary for a meaningful relationship. Now, if all of that wasn't complicated enough, let's add one more thing, and that is that of role. The role that someone plays in our life affects the relationship. When I have a friend, and that's all they are, and their role and my role in the thing is just friend, that's relatively simple, okay? But let's make it real, because what happens when your friend becomes your spouse, Now the role has been complicated. I'm no longer just friend and acquaintance. Now I'm spouse, and that carries a level of responsibility, and it brings with it some expectations. Let's make it more complex. Not just friend, not just spouse, but now friend, spouse, and boss. (laughs) I begin to work for my spouse. Now the relationship has grown even more complicated because the number of hats each person wears has multiplied. It gets more and more. Here's a big one for you. How about parent? When your role is parent in a relationship, a parent wears a lot of hats, right? I mean, if you have a relationship with someone as their parent, you are their life giver, their provider, their sustainer, their teacher, their leader, their corrector, their trainer, their disciplinarian, and then later on, if you survive that phase, their companion, their friend, and their mentor. 
The point is that the more hats that you wear in a relationship, the more complex it is. Now, the ultimate relationship that every human being was created for is a relationship with Almighty God. We've all heard the phrase before that Christianity is not a religion, it's a it's a relationship. That's right. We have a relationship with God. And the most amazing, unbelievable, surreal, fulfilling experience that a human being can have is to be in a meaningful relationship with God. At the same time, the most confusing, the most complicated, the most frustrating experience that a human being can have is to be in a meaningful relationship with God, okay? Not because he's bad, but because he's big. And it makes it very complicated, all right? Isaiah chapter 55, verses 8 and 9 say this about our God. Let me read it to you. God says this about himself. He says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. In other words, God is saying this, I am unsearchable and I am unpredictable. Anybody in a relationship with some human that's unsearchable and unpredictable? That can be frustrating sometimes. God also says in Job chapter 26, 14, it's going to go up on the screen. Right after Job kind of describes some of the wonders of God and what is observable in creation, he says this. He says, lo, these are parts of his ways. I like the New King James, the way it says it. It says that these are the mere edges of his ways. But how little a portion is heard of him, but the thunder of his power, who can understand? In, in other words, everything that we can know in our human limitations about God will never scratch the surface of the mere edges of his ways. So what that means is that we are called to know him, and yet he says that in a way he's unknowable. That's what Paul's talking about in Romans chapter 11, verses 33 and 34, where he says this. He says, oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? In other words, God says, I want you to know me but I'm unknowable. And that can be frustrating at times when you're trying to have a meaningful relationship. God is so big that it's impossible to fully know him. Now, we have an advantage as believers under the new covenant. And that advantage is that God has placed his very person inside of us through what the Bible calls the Holy Spirit or the Spirit of God, his living omnipresent spirit that he puts inside of us. And that helps us to know God and understand God in a way that we wouldn't be able to otherwise. Again, the New Testament describes that dynamic this way. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning in verse 9. Listen to how Paul says it. He says, but as it is written, 
eye has not seen, nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for them that love him. But God has revealed them unto us by his Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, yea, the deep things of God. For what man knows the things of a man save the spirit of the man which is in him. In other words, who really knows you more than you know you who's filled with you? That's what he's saying. Even so, the things of God knows no man but the spirit of God. Just like no one knows you like you know you, no one knows God like God knows God. So what does that mean? Verse 12. Now we have received... Not the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God. In other words, God, under this new covenant that we have in Jesus Christ, he has placed his spirit inside of us, and that has made him knowable to a degree that would otherwise be impossible. It is not a complete knowledge, And our knowledge of God, our relationship with God is something that we grow in day by day and year by year and season by season. It isn't something that we just have all at once. And thus, the bigness of God causes frustration with God in terms of this relationship that we have. Sometimes I understand why Elijah just wanted to run away and get away. I mean, he had a relationship with God. He was pursuing God. He wanted to grow in a relationship with God, but he became frustrated. Listen to the roles, the hats that God wears and plays in his relationship with us. He calls himself our creator, our provider and sustainer, our friend, our helper, our trainer, our parent, our shepherd, our doctor, our boss, our spouse, and our refuge. And the thing that frustrates us, and we all feel this frustration, is that when we're in the presence of God, sometimes we don't know what hat he's wearing. (laughs) God, are you my friend right now, or are you my trainer? You know, because those two things have completely different implications, and you deal with me in completely different ways depending on how we are right now. So, Lord, I need you to interpret for me what hat are you wearing today? And in different seasons and in different times, God has different roles that He plays within our lives. Now, here's what I am learning, and that what we're learning, and that is as we grow closer to God, He becomes less of a trainer and more of a friend. He becomes less of a teacher and more of a counselor or a mentor. He becomes less of a consultant and more of a companion as we grow and get to know him, just like the dynamic between us and our kids. Hopefully, we're moving in that direction. Now, when that happens... When we grow in this relationship with God, and I know it's a long intro to get to this landing place, but it's essential and necessary, is that there's a danger that happens when we get closer to God, when we know him as companion and friend and spouse and lover and helper, is that we can stop or we can lose a healthy fear of God. 
is that we begin to think of him more as a friend or an equal, and instead of us continually moving towards holiness, we think that God is getting more comfortable with our heathenness. And he never is comfortable with our heathenness. He is always pulling us toward his holiness. But when we get comfortable with him, we can begin to get lazy in our pursuit of holiness. And we can think that God is okay with our heathenness. And we stop revering him. We stop fearing him. We stop remembering that he doesn't just wear the friend hat. That he's still God, that he is still our teacher, that he is still our mentor and discipler, that he is still shaping us as the potter shapes clay. And if we lose the fear of God, then we are in danger of doing things that will move God from the category of friend to foe. And that's exactly what happened to David. Okay, we see that David was blessed by God. He was elevated by God. He became secure in God, in his position and in his place. In that, he began to become prideful and a little bit distant from God. And his heart began to harden just a little bit. And David lost the fear of God to the point where David did something that that it tells us in the last verse of chapter 11 that it displeased the Lord. That's the word that is used there in the text, that David displeased the Lord. That means that he grieved God. He upset God. He did something that got him on the wrong side of God, okay? Now, understand this. God is personal and God is relational, He is not a force. He's not a power. He's not a frequency that we dial into. He's not a consciousness that we come into and realize some inordinate force. He is a person. He has a personality. He has preference. He has reason. He has emotion. That's right. God has the ability to feel. In the New Testament book of Ephesians, it says in chapter 4, verse 30, Paul says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. That means that you and I, we have the power, God has given us the power to bring him joy and also to bring him grief. God feels in accordance with our relationship with him. And David here has grieved God. There is a breach in the relationship. There has been a separation. There is a problem. Now, we read the first seven verses where God now sends Nathan to David and brings to him this message, this word that is intended to awaken and stir something up in David. And I want to share with you a few observations or thoughts that I have concerning God's process here with David that are not written necessarily in the text, but I think are important for us to consider. Number one is this, is that God's Number one concern in all of this that's going on right now between him and David and David and his world is David's well-being and David's restoration as well as the restoration and the relationship between David and God. That that is God's number one concern. God's number one concern is not the kingdom and what this means for the kingdom. That is a concern, but that's not God's number one concern. 
God is not concerned with his reputation primarily and what this will do to his reputation. He is concerned about that, but that is not his primary concern. God is not concerned very much at all about his own ego or the offense of it in that, you know, okay, David, you did this and I told you not to. And so I'm going to show you now what I can do. And now you who, look who you're, you know, that's not, it's not about God's ego being hurt. This isn't about God's plan being interrupted. God is not upset because, oh, now David, you did this and it throws everything off. And now I got to go through it and it's all messed up and dirty. And, you know, oh, I can't believe you. No, no, that's not God's main concern. Okay. It's not about appearances. And if you don't understand that those things are not God's primary concern, then you can never understand God's heart in restoration, all right? God is not fully concerned with that. He's concerned with David, his well-being, and his restoration, as well as the restoration of the fellowship that God enjoyed with David. The second thing that I observe here is this, is that when God does move, to reach David and to restore David and to deal with David, it is not reactionary, but it's restorationary. Now, I made up that word, but hopefully you'll remember it. Maybe you'll write it down. It isn't reactionary, it's restorationary. Now, my tendency when there's something going on between me and one of my kids is I'm reactionary. I want to fix it. I want to fix them. I want to deal with the issue, and I want to do it now, okay? God doesn't do that, all right? God is full of patience in this whole thing. There is a year and a half that goes by, and there are no consequences for David whatsoever for an entire year and a half, which means that God is just patiently waiting patiently watching, first of all, hoping that David will just repent, that he'll come clean, that the, the dearth and the drought that's going on inside David's soul will be enough to get his attention, and that he'll come clean with the whole thing. God's giving him room to do that. God is also patiently letting things play out in a way that where and when God does deal with David, he does it in the right way. David would say later in the Psalms, he would say, your gentleness has made me great. And God is not desiring to just make a fool of David, nor just slam him with discipline and punishment and consequences. God wants to restore David. God wants to heal David in his, in his sin. And so God is being very patient in the way that he does it. There are no military failures for a year and a half. There's no enemy oppression. There's no division within the kingdom. And all of that is, you would think that, okay, well, David sinned, and now the hammer's going to fall. The hammer's going to fall. But the hammer doesn't fall because God is calculating. God is reasoning. God is working it out. Sometimes the, the, the gap of time that exists between an action or a sinful action that we might commit and God dealing with us is enough to deceive us into thinking that that silence is acceptance. That be, because there hasn't been something and my house didn't just blow up when I sinned against God or, you know, I wasn't sued or my bank account wasn't hacked into and, you know, things didn't just start happening that were bad because I sinned against God. We start to think, well, maybe God is okay with what I did. 
And that's a dangerous thing to begin to think. God's hope is that David will repent. The Bible says that love hopes all things. And God is hoping for David. And sometimes in God's patience, he's hoping for us. Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verse 11 says that because sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, therefore the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. Sometimes God's patience is misinterpreted as God's tolerance or acceptance over something, and that is absolutely not. God doesn't drop a hammer God sends a prophet. And God's sending of Nathan to David in this text is intentional to awaken David's heart, to resurrect him, to restore him, and to renew him. If God's intent was simply to punish David for what David did, then God would have dropped the hammer. He would have just let things start happening, and he would have left David to figure it out with no explanation at all. David, I'm done with you. You can just figure it out, but that's not what happens. So God sends a prophet. He sends Nathan to David, and he sends him with a parable, something that is going to rub the emotions of David and hopefully stir him awake, and it does. He tells him this story. He says, David, there's something that happened out in the kingdom, and I want you to know about it. It's kind of a tough situation, and we need your judicial expertise on this, is that there was these two men. There was a rich man and a poor man, and you guys know the story. You know, the, the, the rich man had so much, he had flocks, herds, and this, and this traveler came. Someone knocked on his door, and, and he knew he had to make meat for him, so he, he looked and he said, I don't really want I don't like this guy that much, you know. I don't want to kill one of my good sheep for this guy, you know. So, so he goes over to the poor man, and he and he oppresses him. He goes in and he takes the one lamb, the one ewe lamb that this man had, and he loved it. I mean, he bought it. He didn't conquer it. No one got it for him. He didn't birth it out of the abundance of other sheep. He didn't inherit it. This guy bought it. He paid for it with his own life. I mean, obviously, we know that he's talking about Uriah the Hittite. How hard was it for Uriah the Hittite to score Bathsheba the princess from Judah who's living near the palace. That's not easy. I thought I had a battle to win Georgia, and it was. I mean, I can't believe it, you know. But, but he got Bathsheba, and he was a Hittite. That was a price that he paid in order to do it, okay? And he caused her, I'm sure, grief in the process as well, as we talked about last week. This is his precious ewe lamb. But the rich man didn't want to take one of his, when the traveler came. What's a traveler? Uh, It's equated in the text to an appetite. David had an appetite. The thing about appetites is they come, and then they are fed, and they go, and then they come again. It's just an appetite. Travelers, appetites, lust, desires, they come all the time. And David got an appetite, which is completely normal. But in David's position, David had ample means of satisfying that appetite. But he didn't want any of the things in his refrigerator. He didn't want any of the women, the wives and the concubines that had already been given to him. That wasn't what he was hungry for in that moment. He wanted someone else's food. So he took the knife that was in front of him, eliminated the man who was sitting at that table place, and took the plate of food that was in front of him. David took Uriah's 
wife, and he killed Uriah in the process. Nathan says he didn't want to take from his own flocks, so he took the one beloved, precious ewe lamb from the poor man. And that was what he did. And David's reaction to what Nathan says is that his anger was exceedingly kindled in front of it. And you got to ask the question, why is David so angry over this situation? I mean, Nathan doesn't name names. David doesn't know yet that this is a parable about what he did a year and a half ago. He just thinks he's hearing the story of a man and some lambs. And justice is just is. Justice just is. That's what it is. And so David, if it's being brought to him, he's the king. He will rule. He knows the law. A man stole a lamb. Why is David so angry over a man and his lamb? And so David gives this sentence in his anger. He says, that man shall surely die. And then he goes, and restore fourfold. Okay. Now that part is the law. He, if a man steals, the law was that he restores fourfold. Death was not a penalty for theft. All right, that was over and above. David said he's going to die and he's going to restore fourfold. Jesus said something, didn't he, about the sliver in the beam? You ever, you ever hear Jesus? When he said, he, he told this parable and he said, hey, before you go and you try to remove the sliver from your neighbor's eye, maybe you should check and see if there's a beam or a telephone pole in your own eye before you go. And if you can just get rid of what's in your eye, then you'll see clearly and you'll understand what's going on in your neighbor's eye. And he was talking about this exact type of thing. It's amazing, isn't it, how awful our sins look to us when someone else is committing them, isn't it? I mean, we, we seek to justify our own actions, and, and we graciously excuse in ourselves the things that we condemn in others. That's just part of the human condition. So next time you're tempted to get angry at the sin that someone else is committing, check yourself. Because your emotion may be an indication that there's something not exactly right in that area of your life. And that's exactly what's going on in David. Now, Nathan, in verse 7, says the hardest thing, he does the hardest thing that he will ever have to do in the entirety of his life. Is he, as a prophet, has to stand in front of a king and say the words, you are the man. And we just read it in the text and we just think, okay, well, he was a prophet and the whole thing. And, you know, it doesn't necessarily work like that. I mean, David is a powerful, prideful, hardened king at this moment who has gone to great lengths to cover up his deed. And it is on the brink of the potential of being exposed. And if his heart is not in the right position, this is a very vulnerable place for the prophet Nathan to be in. You know, I, I just keep hearing this conversation in, in the context of some of the things that we've seen over our lifetime. I mean, Nathan the prophet comes to Bill Clinton, and he says, you're the man. And what's the response? I did not touch that woman, you know. <laughs> Nathan the prophet comes to Governor Cuomo, and he says, I told you, like I told everybody else, it was consensual, Right? Later on in Old Testament history, there's going to be a king named Asa. 
He was a good king. I mean, his entire life was good. Everything he did was good. But he makes a minor mistake later on in his reign. He asks for help from people that he shouldn't be asking for help from. And a prophet named Hanani comes and he says to him, he says, hey, what you did was wrong back there. And it says that Asa got into a rage and he arrested Hanani the prophet and he oppressed him in prison and then he tortured some of the people because he was so, he didn't want anyone to think that anything that he did was wrong. And that is absolutely a possibility right now as Nathan comes to David and he confronts him over this issue. Thank God David has been readied for this by God. Well, Nathan continues. He says, you are the man. Let's continue reading in verse 7. He says, thus says the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. God says to him, God says, not Nathan, God says, thus says the Lord, I have anointed you king over Israel. I am the one that gave you the job that you were absolutely positively unqualified for, and that you had no natural right to, to have. You, you were not born into, you couldn't have obtained it yourself. There's no level of education that could have brought it to you. You couldn't have arranged the circumstances that brought you into the place that got you the job that I got you. I anointed you to be the king over Israel. He says, I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. I delivered you. I'm the one that delivered you out of the childhood torture that you experienced, out of the system that you felt trapped in and that you hated and that was keeping you down. I brought you out of it. I'm the one that got you out of the neighborhood that if you stayed in that neighborhood, you never would have had any moment or shred of opportunity in your life. I'm the one that got you out of the culture that was so contrary to your personality that you felt like you couldn't breathe or survive for even another day. I'm the one that got you out of there. Or the situation that you were in that you thought you were going to choke to death. I delivered you from that. It was me that did it. And then God says in verse 8, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your bosom. And I gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. I'm the one that gave you the house that you couldn't afford, the wives that you didn't deserve that were better than you. I gave you a united Israel. I put you in a position that was better than any position that anyone before you ever had and that almost no one after you will ever have. I'm the one that put you in that position. And then God caps it off by saying this, and if that had been too little, I would moreover have given unto you such and such things. Now this is relational. This is not God yelling at David. This is God pleading from a heart of grief and saying to David, David, we had something. There was something going on. You trusted me. You followed me. I led you. You sought me. I answered. You talked. I responded. You had a need. I showed up. There was this mutual thing that was going on constantly, and I have done for you and done for you and done for you. And if what I had done for you wasn't enough, David, I would have done such and such things. There was no limitation. And doesn't the Bible say that, that if God spared not his own son, 
but freely delivered him up for us all, how much more will he not now with him also freely give us all things? God says there's no limit on what I will do if it's in your best interest. I don't withhold good from those that love me. This has been my kindness to you, David. This is what I've done. And so God now asks the question. He's got David's attention in verse 9. He says, wherefore or why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You have killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and you have taken his wife to be your wife, and you have slain him with the sword of the children of Ammon. David, you despised my commandment. That the one thing that I asked of you was to walk in my ways. I empowered you to do that. I gave you the truth of my word. I gave you my Holy Spirit. I gave you my counsel. I taught you in your heart in the night seasons. And I put before you these things. And I said to you, I whispered the words and I said, if you love me, then keep my commandments. That's what Jesus said in John chapter 15. And you have despised my commandments. David broke five of the Ten Commandments in one action. All five of them on the second table of the law. David stole. David killed. David coveted. David lied. And David committed adultery. That's five out of the Ten Commandments in one thing that David committed against the Lord. And God says, why have you despised me and my ways in doing this? And so now God says, here's going to be the consequences for your actions. Verse 10. Now, therefore, it's connective. Because of this, the sword shall never depart from your house. Because you have despised me and you have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. And I will take your wives from before your eyes, and I will give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all of Israel and before the son. God says the consequences are going to be twofold. Number one is that the sword is going to devour from within your own house. Remember when David said that, that the man who did this thing will restore fourfold? And that was the law. The law was that you would restore fourfold. That's exactly what's going to happen to David. He will lose four of his sons in the second tenure of his kingdom. He will lose the baby that is born to him of Bathsheba out of this adulterous relationship. He will lose his son Amnon. He will lose his son Absalom. And he will lose his son Adonijah. Fourfold, David will pay. And all of that evil will arise from within his house. God says, secondarily, because you've done this thing, you did it secretly, you took a man's wife, but I'm going to do it before the son. One of those four sons, Absalom, is going to make a move upon the throne. And while David is away, Absalom will pitch a tent on the roof of the palace and David will sleep with 10, uh, I'm sorry, Absalom will sleep with 10 of David's concubines literally fulfilling what God spoke through Nathan that he would do on the rooftop of the palace in the presence of the son and before all of Israel, David's wives will be defiled, not just by his neighbor, but by his son. God says, this will be the consequence for your sin. Now, verse 13 is clutch. And if I've lost you, please come back. 
because it says that David now responds. He said unto Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And I want you to just think about how huge that is, what David just said. Because he doesn't try to justify what he did. He doesn't try to downplay it. He doesn't try to negotiate with Nathan or with God over the consequences. He doesn't ask for an explanation. Well, to what level do these consequences go? You know, I know I can't outsmart God, but, you know, am I going to lose the, the, the crown? Am I going to lose the throne right away? And, like, what should I expect? And how long is this going to have? Like, none, all of that would say something. But what comes out of David's mouth in this moment that he's been confronted placed in front of a mirror, and he has to see what's inside of his heart. The first words out of his mouth, he says, I have sinned against the Lord. I have transgressed. I have willfully crossed the line that I know God drew in the sand. And I made a conscious decision, and I walked over it in disrespect and in despising. What God is saying that I did is exactly what I did. Those are huge words. That's called in the Bible, confession. The word confession in the Bible, in the, in the New Testament, is the Greek word homologeo. It comes from two words. Homo means the same, and logos is the word. So it's the same word. And to confess means that you're saying the same thing about something that God says about that same thing. So when I confess that I have sinned, I am saying, God, I have done exactly what you said. And, and this is exactly what it means. And this is a huge moment for David. Because watch, now that David has confessed his sin, watch what God says. David says, verse 13, I have sinned against the Lord. And before he can even go on, before he can even finish the sentence, he is interrupted. And it says that Nathan said unto David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Before there is anything else, even before he tells him that he's not going to die, he says that your sin is forgiven. And I need you to hear me tonight, sinner. And I say that with a smile because I'm saying it to myself. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. It says that if we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we will own before him the faults, the decisions, the transgressions, the actions, the misdeeds, whatever you want to call them, if we will own them before God and say the same thing about them before him, the Bible says that he is Faithful, that means he always does it every time. If something is faithful, it is consistent. He consistently, he is faithful, and here's a big one, and just. Meaning that he is bringing justice into the forgiveness. Which means somewhere in this equation, that sin was paid for. Because God can't sweep something under the rug. He wouldn't be just if he did that. Somewhere the account has to be settled. So for God to be able to forgive sin justly, that means somewhere that sin was paid for. And that's what Jesus accomplished on the cross of Calvary. 
Jesus was nailed to the cross, the righteousness of God became sin for us so that we could be made righteous in him. So that when we confess our sin, he is faithful every single time and just to not only forgive us, but to cleanse us. Not only does he take it off of the account, but he also does a work inside of us, the cleansing power, where he removes the guilt of the sin and he removes the power of that sin that it has over us to keep us coming back to it. As we confess and repent, God forgives and outroots the sin from within us. David says, I have sinned against the Lord, and in the same breath, he is interrupted with forgiveness. That's how fast it happens. That's the grace of God. God forgives David, and he takes away from him the wages of sin. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is what? Death. And he says, you shall not die. And it's so important that you understand that if you have failed and when you fail, to whatever degree that failure is, that when you confess your sin to God, he is faithful and just because of Jesus to forgive it and to cleanse it immediately. It is washed away under the blood. That's what he does. You say, well, that just means that I can you know, kind of just live how I want, right? Because if he's just going to forgive me as soon as I confess, and if that's what the cross has afforded, then I could just do whatever I want and then just confess it, and it's gone and washed away. Yep, it's gone and washed away. But read on. The consequences the ripple effect of what you did, that doesn't go away. See, if you throw a rock into the water that was still as glass that you were not to disturb, you can be forgiven, but you can't stop the ripples. If you kick the car door because you had a fit of rage, you can confess and repent and be forgiven and God forgets but that doesn't fix the dent in the car door that was made by your outburst of rage and anger. Notice verse 14. How be it? Because by this deed, you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. The child also that is born unto thee shall surely die. In other words, God says there's another factor in all of this that you haven't considered, David, and that is that I do have a family, I do have a kingdom, and there is a reputation that is to be held amongst those that are called by my name. And when you, through your actions, give occasion to the unbelieving world to look in and say, see, they're just like everyone else, then you are ruining the power of the testimony of what I create in a life. Because I do not, God says, just give people commands, do this and don't do that. I also give people power to live differently than everybody else. And when you sin against that power, you are making it look like all I am is a rule giver, but that I don't supply the power and the strength and the desire to do what's right. And I do. And you have given great occasion 
of the enemies to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme in this deed that you have done. Therefore, there will be consequences that will come. That which was already said, and God says also, the child will die. I cannot allow you to just go forward and let your life look like nothing ever happened because if I do that, it will embolden everyone who's watching your life to think that they can live however they want without any consequences. And the more in the center of attention you are, the greater those consequences will be for that very reason. One of the reasons why the Bible says, be not many masters, be not many leaders, because we will receive the stricter judgment. And David certainly receives the stricter judgment. Well, Nathan departed to his house. And the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife bare unto David, and it was very sick. David therefore besought God for the child, and David fasted and went in and laid all night upon the earth. And the elders of his house arose and went to him to raise him up from the earth, but he would not, neither did he eat bread with them. And it came to pass on the seventh day that the child died. And the servants of David feared to tell him that the child was dead, for they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke unto him, and he would not hearken unto our voice. How will he then vex himself if we tell him that the child is dead? But when David saw that his servants whispered, David perceived that the child was dead. Therefore David said to his servants, Is the child dead? And they said, He is dead. Then David arose from the earth, and he washed and anointed himself and changed his apparel. And he came into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he came to his own house, and when he required, they set bread before him, and he did eat. Then said his servants unto him, What is this thing that you have done? You did fast and weep for the child while it was alive, but when the child was dead, you did rise and eat bread. And he said, While the child was yet alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, Who can tell whether God will be gracious to me that the child may live? But now he's dead. Wherefore should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. Just an aside, it's not really in the context of this particular message, but that's an important verse to understand about what happens to the child of at least a believing parent when they die uh, in their infancy or in their youth. David is confidently, confidently able to say to his servants and recorded then in scripture by the Holy Spirit affirmed that David, when he goes to glory, that he will meet that child there. People ask that question, you know, what happens to, uh, you know, a child who dies before they accept Christ or understand the gospel? You know, are they lost forever? You know, the Bible teaches that a child is sanctified by a believing parent. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 7. In the Old Testament, when the people went into the promised land and the, 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 the first generation was denied entry because of their unbelief, God said through Joshua that everyone who's 20 years of age and younger will go in because they were unaccountable for the sins of their fathers. They didn't know, they didn't know the difference, the right hand or the left. You know, that doesn't mean that until you're 20, you get a free pass to live however you want. But what it does teach us is that there is an age wherein God makes an assessment that a person has enough uh, information and enough capacity to make a decision. Uh, for themselves, which way they're going to go. That's why in, in the church, we don't typically baptize infants because an infant can't make a decision to follow Christ. Baptism is uh, the result of a decision to follow Christ, you know, and something Jesus didn't even usually lose, 30, you know. So uh, that's just an aside. Come back to context. This is almost the end, verse 24. It says that David comforted Bathsheba, his wife, and he went in unto her and he laid with her. 
And she bare a son, and he called his name Solomon, and the Lord loved him. Do you see that? You, now, you would think, because his, his thoughts are higher than our thoughts, you know, and his ways are beyond our ways. They're, they're really past fine. You would think if, if this had any humanness in it at all, if God was at all like one of us, you would think that God despised him, that God put a curse upon his life, that God made sure that all the days of his life, every time David saw him, he would somehow be reminded of what he did and whose mother he was. And what kind of a man and life David has to live now that all this... No, no, no. It says that, that God loved him. I want to tell you a truth about our God, and I hope it is imprinted upon your soul and you never lose it. It's this. That it is impossible for the Lord to forget. But it is possible for him not to remember. And that is a distinction between God and us that will always be different. Okay, because it is very possible for us to forget. Does anybody in here forget things? You know, <laughs> every day? You know, it is absolutely possible for us to forget. It is also impossible for us to not remember. I hate the fact that I forget everything I want to remember and I remember everything I want to forget. It's absolutely impossible for me not to do that, okay? But it is possible for God not to remember. Isaiah chapter 43, verse 25, listen to God. He says, I, even I, am he that blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Did you hear what God just said? That when he blots out your sins, when he puts it away, he doesn't remember it anymore. Not because he forgot, because God can't forget, but because God in his omnipotence, his all-powerful ways, he is able to block it from coming to his memory. Yes, it's in the record book somewhere, okay? Just like David's thing is in the record book. God is hearing it again. God's not going like, David did what? You know, no, God knows what David did, but God doesn't Deal with David according to what was done. There is life after failure. Do you understand? That after a, a, a horrible thing, even murder, even adultery to the level that David committed it, God can then look at David and he can resurrect, he can redeem, he can even work the circumstances for David's good. You say, how is that so? Do you know that God chooses Bathsheba and Solomon to be the line of descendants through which Jesus will come? I mean, this isn't David's firstborn. David's already had a bunch of kids. He's got a bunch of wives. And God just said, one of your descendants is going to bring forth Christ. But God says, no, I love Solomon. And I love David. And I want David to know that he's forgiven. And I'm going to take David's experience and not only am I going to use it in countless lives to warn people so that they can understand, and maybe they won't go this way, but on the other side of David's restoration, I am going to take the byproduct of this, and I'm going to do something so beautiful with it that the world will never fully comprehend how good it is. That's the grace of God. That's what he does when he restores. 
The chapter, oh, let me read one more verse uh, here in, in, in the text because um, David needs confirmation. Verse 25. It says that he sent by the hand of Nathan the prophet and he called his name. Nathan calls him Solomon. He calls him Jedidiah because of the Lord. Jedidiah means beloved of the Lord. So God sends the same prophet back to say, oh yeah, David, just in case there's any guilt that's left over in your heart because of the things that are going on right now, I just want you to know that God loves this child and God loves you, David, and you are completely forgiven. God doesn't deal with you according to your sins any longer. There is a skill that you and I must acquire. It's the ability to not remember our transgressions. See, God doesn't remember them. He doesn't. We confess it. He puts it away. It's gone. But we remember them. Anybody in here, you ever sin against somebody and every time you walk in the room, it's all you can think of? You, you see what, see, see that person, that's all you can think of. You're like, yep, 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 yep. God says, I'm not that way, and, and, and I will never throw this back in your face again, what you did. I will never, ever rem- remember this. I'm not going to bring it up. But we must be able to receive that in and of ourselves. Paul worked on this. He says in Philippians chapter 3, I think it's in verse 13, he says this. He says, I don't count myself to have uh, attained. I, I, I'm not there yet. I haven't arrived. He says, but this is what I'm working on. This is what I do. He says, I forget the things which are behind, and I press forward towards the mark of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. And as long as you are living in the sins of your past and not letting God forgive you and not letting God love you in spite of your failures, you will never be able to move forward from where you are right now. God says it's forgiven and it's forgotten in my book. And now I'm going to move forward and I'm going to do something with your life, even on the other side of it, even in spite of the consequences that you're living through. But you and I must also embrace that And say, okay, God, you say it's forgiven. And so by faith, I'm going to walk in the freedom of that and in the restoration of the relationship that we have. And not in the guilt and the constant playing over of that sin in my mind over and over and over again. From here, and you can read the chapter on your own, David goes on. And he goes on to win more battles. He steals the crown off the king, the head of another king, and puts it back on, symbolic of God restoring him to his position. And David will have many years of a fruitful and successful reign in a relationship with God. And you know what? David wouldn't be the man that he became if it hadn't been for this experience that he had with God. There would probably be 75 Psalms in the book of Psalms if it wasn't for this experience that David had with God. This deepened David to such a degree. And my prayer for you here tonight is that if you... I don't even have to say if, that you can, because of the grace of God and the person of Jesus, you can look at whatever it is that is plaguing your heart with guilt, and you can write over it the words that God has written over it, it's forgiven. And that God looks at you, and he says, let's go. Let's press toward the mark of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Amen? Father, we just thank you tonight, Lord, for, for this truth. And, uh, and we do pray, Lord, that you would help us in those areas that we still feel the guilt of the things of our past. And, and Lord, help us to have faith, to receive, to grab a hold of, that you've redeemed, that you've restored, that you've renewed, and that you're working, that you're moving. So help us, Lord. We need you every day. God, so fill us with your love. 
with your mercy. And thank you, Lord, for these warnings, for these words. May they be for us a guide. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand. Thanks for joining us for the Pastor Nick Santo podcast. To regularly receive these teachings, be sure to subscribe so you can get it automatically when it's released. If you find this material helpful, please share it and help us get the message of Jesus out to others. We also appreciate your feedback, so if you would, leave us a review in iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts, or email us at pastor.nickpc at gmail.com. Until next time, may you continue to love, learn, and live the way of Jesus.